0: Hallelujah, I'm free. Is that good? That's good. As I was listening to the song, I was thinking, okay, so the title of my message is Let No One Divert You from Christ, and we'll see why that is. But uh, a a subtitle could be, or a scene from a positive side. Uh, Paul's going to be writing sort of from the negative side, but from a positive side, it's Hallelujah, I'm free from these things that we're going to talk about this morning. So if you're more of a positive person... You can change the, uh, the, what are those things? Sermon points? Hallelujah, I'm free from this. And we'll, we'll find out what these things are as we walk through this passage. We continue our study in Colossians. Uh, if you have Bibles, those are good things to have. Uh, turn to chapter 2. We're in, uh, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 23. This is the end of chapter 2, halfway through Colossians. Woo! Woo! Let's get excited here. Come on. We got, this is, about, this is, is right at the halfway point of, of this book. We're Sermon 10 of about 2021. I haven't quite figured that out yet. Now, if you remember, Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to strengthen the church against false teachers. In chapter 2, verse 8, he both warned against and summarized their false teachings. We looked at this, uh, I think, two weeks ago. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. These false teachers were promoting Christless, maybe they use the word Jesus, but not the Jesus we know, not the Jesus of the New Testament, Christless deceptive philosophies, philosophies that were based in human tradition but ultimately came from elemental or demonic spirits. And as we come to the end of chapter 2, Paul gives further warnings uh, and insight into these false philosophies. So as we walk through these verses, I pray that we'll take these warnings seriously. For in our, our day, as in Paul's, there are many, many, many Christless, deceptive philosophies all of which are seeking to, at their heart, at their core, as they are from uh, elemental demonic spirits, they're seeking to divert us from Christ. Anything to keep us from Christ. To keep us from walking in Christ. To keep us from living in Christ. Loving Christ. And therefore, we need to recognize and stand firm against anything or anyone Who would promote any philosophy, way of thinking, contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But these philosophies, these Christless philosophies, are not always easy to recognize. We've seen this as we've walked through. As Paul will tell us in verse 23 again, they have an appearance of wisdom. They're subtle. They're deceptive. Satan does not come at us wearing a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. Instead as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth Satan disguises himself as an angel of light so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness Therefore if we're to avoid being taken captive by these Christless satanic philosophies we must be rooted and grounded in Christ we must know who we are in Christ and so Paul in verses 15 through 9 through 15 Really, uh, 10 through 15, but 9 is important as well. He's prepared us, he's prepared the Colossians to face uh, these false teachers by proclaiming our identity in Christ. This is what we looked at last week. In verse 9, he declares Christ's supremacy. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he goes on to tell us what that means. That Christ is fully God. In, he, when you see Christ, you see God. Everything about Christ, everything about God. He goes on to tell us what that means for those of us who are in Christ. Let me summarize what he said in verses 10-15, through 15, what we saw last week. We're filled in Christ. He alone provides everything we need. We are circumcised in Christ. Our sinful flesh has been removed by Christ. We're baptized in Christ, our old self is dead and buried, and we're raised to new life in Christ. We're forgiven in Christ, our record of debt, our sins have been nailed to the cross, paid in full by the blood of Christ, and we're triumphant in Christ. We share in His victory over rulers and authorities, the satanic, demonic forces of this world. And so with those truths ringing in our ears who we are in Christ, Paul then warns us against uh, three Christless deceptive philosophies. He doesn't say, "Here's three Christless deceptive philosophies. I'm saying, and others, as they look at this passage of saying, he's pointing out these three things. First, in verses 16 through 17, he says, "Let no one judge you with legalism." Now Paul doesn't use the word legalism, but the concept is present. So before we get to the passage, let's make sure we're clear about what is meant by legalism. What it means, what it doesn't mean. Put simply, legalism is the belief that keeping the law, specifically the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, is an integral part of our acceptance with God. Now I want to be very clear, notice that legalism does not equal obedience to the law obedience to much of the law, much of what the Old Testament teaches, is something Christians continue to be commanded to do. For example, the law, the Ten Commandments, include the commands to worship God alone, to not murder or steal, commit adultery, to covet. And these are all things that we should, must continue to obey. And when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He quoted from the law, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so no true believer would say that Christians no longer need to obey these laws. So legalim, le, legalism is not obedience to the law. Again, legalism is the belief that keeping the law is an integral part of our acceptance with God. If you ask, how do I get uh, God to accept me? How How do I get to heaven, if you will, even? The legalist's answer is keep the law, perform the law. But the Bible teaches that God only accepts, saves us by grace through faith in Christ. And then flowing from, this is the crucial part here, Well, not the crucial part, but with regards to legalism, the crucial part. Flowing from true faith comes a heart that desires to obey God's laws. Obedience to the law is not the key to acceptance. Faith is. But obedience is a sign of true faith and a transformed heart. Does that make sense? Brian, dad, anybody else? All right, that makes sense. Because we don't, uh, oh wait, wait, also, it's important for us to be aware that when it comes to uh, Christians' obedience to the Old Testament law, not in legalism, but as a sign of true faith, there's much debate about which laws we Gentiles are to obey. The debate goes way, all the way back to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, which I'm assigning as homework. All right, and I know you guys will all do that because just, you just do what I say. We don't have time today to go over this debate. That's not Paul's purpose. But I do want us to understand that in the New Testament, much of the Old Testament law, mainly the law which governed Israel as a nation and their religious life ceremonies, sacrifices are abolished or fulfilled by Christ. Whereas other aspects of the Old Testament law, like loving God, loving people, not killing, stealing, coveting, etc., are reinforced in the New Testament. And again, seeking to keep these laws is not legalism, it is faithful obedience to God. It comes out of our faith. Now, there are different kinds of legalism, okay? The Pharisees, for example, believed that keeping the law was uh, the whole basis for your acceptance by God while the christian legalist quote unquote might believe that keeping the law is a necessary part of your a necessary part of your acceptance by god you must both accept jesus christ as your lord and savior by faith and then keep certain laws to be accepted by god and just to be clear both are equally wrong it's just that the christian legalist is more appealing in the church But to say that God requires you to add anything to the work of Christ means that Christ's work was not sufficient. That you must help yourself as well. To the surprise of many, uh, God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. But it would be a good motto for the legalist. Now Paul's letter to the church in Galatia was written specifically to combat legalism. The church was under attack from what what are known as Judaizers, Jewish and other Christians who taught, along with trusting in Christ for your justification, you must also keep at least some of the law of Moses. And to those faced with this Christless philosophy, Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Clear? Works of the law, trying to keep the law, does not lead to or add to our justification before God. It is by grace through faith alone that we're saved, justified, made righteous, forgiven before God. So now we know what legalism is, what it's not, we can look at our passage. In verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, therefore, therefore, refers back, to, that's why I reviewed verses 9 through 15 with this, refers back to our identity in Christ. Therefore, because of who you are in Christ, who are you? You're dead to sin, alive to God, you're triumphant over demonic spirits and more. All of what we talked about last week, all of what we reviewed today, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The phrase pass judgment in the Greek means to determine the fate of, to specifically to condemn. As Paul is is saying, so Paul is saying, hey, uh, buddy, You who are in Christ, remember, we've just talked about that. Those whose old self is dead. Those who are born again. Those who are forgiven of their sins. Listen up, Christ has accomplished all of this and more for you and in you. Why would you let anyone pass judgment on you for not keeping these laws? What you eat, what you drink, the days you worship. As Paul wrote to the church in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation, general overarching everything for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, no one has the right, no one has the authority to condemn you. And yet, there are always those who try. So Paul warns the believer of two specific areas of legalism that we're being focused on. Diet, what you eat and drink, and days, uh, when you worship. Regarding diet, there were evidently those who were saying that your acceptance of God would be enhanced if you included the dietary laws of the Old Testament. The Old Testament categorized certain foods as clean and unclean. Foods that uh, the, the, the nation Israel, the Jews, could eat, foods they could not eat. And there were certainly a number of reasons for this. Some, like Dr. S.I. McMillan in his book, None of These Diseases, speculate that unknown even to the Jews, there were excellent physical health reasons for the Old Testament dietary laws. Maybe. And there were certainly spiritual reasons. Making the distinction between clean and unclean foods was meant, as, a, as we'll see, a picture, an illustration to God's people of the fact that there is spiritual purity and impurity, they were, the, the, the Jews, Israel, was, they were forced, if you will, every day to make a decision, to choose between what God desired, that which was clean, and what he didn't desire, that which was unclean. Also, as a nation, Israel was commanded to remain separate from other nations. They were to be a shining example of God's chosen people. Causing the nations around them, so this was their mandate, if you will, causing the nations around them to see who who they were and who they were in who, whose who's God they worshipped, the God they worshipped, and even trust in them. If you remember uh, from Solomon's life, you know, the Queen of Sheba, others would come, they'd heard of this nation and God's work within them. We have examples of, of Ruth and Rahab and others coming to know Uh, Gentiles coming to know the Lord through his people. And the dietary laws, when followed, helped Israel to remain separate. However, when Jesus came, those dietary laws were abolished. Jesus said to the Pharisees, who were offended by his eating habits, uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Those parentheses are in the Bible. I didn't put them in there. Sometimes you think that. Also, Peter, a Jew, Apostle Peter, had a vision from God in Acts chapter 10, that was meant to settle the matter. Let's, let's do away with this matter here. He saw a sheet lowered from heaven, and it was crawling with animals, both clean and unclean. And beginning in verse 13, we read, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, in typical Peter fashion, By no means, Lord. That, you can't say that. By no means, Lord. It doesn't work. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times for emphasis, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So again, the distinction between clean and unclean foods has been removed. And one very practical reason for this is the church uh, is not the nation Israel. The church, unlike Israel, is not called to remain separate from the world, separate from the Gentiles. Instead, the church, we are commanded to go, therefore, and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing, making disciples of all peoples. And to do this well, to take the gospel across cultural barriers, means going into homes and, and eating what you're served. I could tell you stories about what I was served, which would include a much Formerly unclean foods. anybody ever heard of what's it called? Blood. Anyway, blood saw that. Yeah. No. So the New Testament is clear that God has made all food and drink lawful, and the same applies to days. The Jews had their special feasts, feast days, and their new moons, celebrations, and their Sabbaths, and the observance of these days was required by the law. However, when Christ came, He fulfilled them all. Colossians 2.17 says these, it's right after 16 that we just, Old Testament laws, specifically the ceremonial laws, the diet and the days, are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The Old Testament ceremonial laws, the dietary laws, the days were a picture. And they had their time." They had their purpose in the life of God's people, but they were only a shadow meant to point to something greater. This is why most Christians no longer celebrate uh, the Sabbath, because we now worship on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday, today, the day that commemorates the resurrection of Christ. And as the author of Hebrews writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Not only the diet and the days of the ceremonial law, but also the laws that govern the sacrificial system were but shadows. Shadows of the good things that were to come through Christ. As Paul writes to the Romans, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So it's clear, the law, specifically that ceremonial law, was but a shadow. But the substance, what the shadow was reflecting, was Christ. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. And yet, legalism persists in the church. We seem to think that keeping the law is, Uh, uh, It it, it seems especially laws that were clearly abolished in the New Testament Continues to be a requirement for our acceptance by God This is a problem, both personally and interpersonally Personally, legalism produces uh, a surface faith Because its focus is on externals of behavior And not the internals of the heart Legalism ignores internal deadly sins such as coveting, gossiping, slandering, bitterness, and hatred. Legalism limits one to a shallow external self-righteousness and pride if successful, or even self-condemnation if unsuccessful. The other day I heard a, a Catholic man say that he was going to hell because he forgot to eat, he forgot it was Friday and ate sausage for breakfast. Uh It's Lent, if you don't know, and for the Catholics during Lent, you're not supposed to eat meat on Friday, although this past Friday, the bishop gave a dispensation because it was St. Patrick's Day, so they could eat meat. It's a little bit confusing. (laughs) So he said, he said, I forgot to eat. I forgot it was Friday. I had my normal breakfast, sausage. I'm going to hell. Now, I don't think he was serious, but those thoughts, that's the thoughts that are in his mind. That eating meat on Friday during Lent is a great violation of God's law. And therefore, eating meat on Friday will result in God not accepting you. And so, he's he's very focused on on not eating meat. Especially now, because he's got to redouble his efforts. And when he and we, he and we should instead be focused on what's important. Love for God. Love for others. You can see how legalism diverts us away from Christ as we focus on ourselves and externals. In fact, at its heart, legalism is saying that Christ did not put an end to the law. That his sacrifice was insufficient. That I must, by keeping the law, contribute to his work. This dilutes the work of Christ and diverts us from the the true gospel to a Christless, self-focused, pride-filled philosophy. So personally, legalism takes the focus away from Christ and His work and puts it on ourselves and our ability to keep the law. And second, interpersonally, legalism seeks to keep the law, believing it enhances your relationship with God. This leads to judgmentalism. I'm going to have lots of isms here. That's exactly what was happening in the uh, church in Colossae. There were those who believed they, they needed to keep at least some of the Old Testament law. And this led uh, to pride them pridefully, okay, I'm doing it. You need to do it too. So they're pridefully passing judgment on those who were not keeping those laws. Laws, again, that had been abolished by Christ. Legalism causes judgment, division, disunity in the church. And most damning, it diverts us from Christ and his work in fulfilling the law. So don't judge anyone with legalism. And let no one judge you with legalism, for hallelujah, we are free in Christ. Now as bad as legalism is, there's another danger, equally harmful. Paul warns, let no one disqualify you with mysticism. Everybody say that, mysticism, no, don't say it. Again, as in legalism, the word mysticism is not used in this passage, but the concept is here. So let's make sure we understand what I mean by mysticism. Mysticism involves the pursuit of deeper communion with the divine and attaining greater understanding of spiritual truth through various means like meditation and prayer. Now you might say, well, that, what's the problem with that? Don't we all want to pursue a deeper communion with God? And that's true. In fact, there is a Christian mysticism, the goal of which is a deeper knowledge of God, a deeper understanding of Christ, sought through meditation and prayer and the Word of God. But that's not the mysticism that Paul is warning against in Colossae. What he's addressing is a deceptive mysticism, which is rooted not in Christ. It's a mysticism derived from a Christless philosophies of these false teachers. And beginning in verse 18, Paul counters it with these words. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. So there were those in Colossae who were seeking to disqualify the believers, saying they were not worthy, not faithful to God, not doing what they should do, not truly saved. Why? Well, first, because they were not engaging in asceticism and the worship of angels. Now, that word asceticism ah, can be a little confusing. We tend to think of it as depriving oneself of, of pleasure, of sinful, of, uh, for spiritual reasons. But the confusion is in the, can be seen in the fact that uh, in the King James, it's translated voluntary humility, in the NIV, false humility, In the NASB, self-abasement, ESV, asceticism. In the Greek, it means lowliness of mind, humility, having a humble opinion of oneself. And in some instances, that's, that's good, right? We're to be humble. But here the false teachers are insisting upon it, not from themselves, but from others, and they're coupling it with, connecting it to, the worship of angels. It seems they were saying, you're not good enough to go directly to God. Therefore, if you want to have a spiritual experience, you must first, in great humility, bow before and worship angels. Apparently angels were seen by these as intermediaries between God and man. And worshiping them would help you gain a spiritual knowledge and eventually access to God himself. They were sort of a stepping stone between, before you could get to God. However, Writing to Timothy, Paul is clear. There is, no, there is one God, and, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ, Jesus. Angels are not mediators or intermediaries, intermediaries between us and God. Only Christ, the perfect God-man. 100% God, 100%. He's the only one that can bridge that gap. And because of his finished work on the cross, through him, those who trust in him, we have access. We can go directly to God. To the church in Ephesus, speaking both of Jews and Gentiles, Paul writes, For through Christ, we both, everyone in Christ, have access to one spirit, in one, of, in one spirit to the Father. Through Christ, we can go directly to God. We can know God in a deep, mystical, if you will, way through Christ alone, not through self-abasement, false humility, the worship of angels. And just to be clear, let me point out that these angels that were being worshipped were clearly not God's angels. It wasn't Gabriel or Michael or, or the like, because true angels do not accept worship. When the apostle John was kind of in the book of Revelation, he's sort of overwhelmed by Uh, these visions he's receiving. And the the angel is giving him this vision and he falls down at his feet. And the angel said to him, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So if there were angels being worshipped, they were not God's angels. They were certainly fallen angels. The elemental spirits, demonic forces, disguised as angels of light. This is one of the major problems with mysticism. You might think you're seeking the divine, the one true God, deeper spiritual knowledge, but in reality, you're seeking the God of this world, the one disguised as an angel of light, Satan himself. And then along with insisting people worship angels, these false teachers also claim to have special visions Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. They were claiming that their visions made them special. Gave them access to deeper, even secret knowledge of God. And just to be clear, whatever visions they were seeing were not from God. God does, as we've seen with John and and Peter, even in our time today. God does give, at times, visions. but these were not visions from God. They were either making them up or more likely receiving visions from the elemental demonic spirits. And the result was pride. They were puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds, says Paul. Calling, they were calling others to asceticism, uh, self-abasement, humility, but they themselves were filled with conceit. This seems to be a common theme among some uh, quote-unquote Christian spiritual leaders. They claim to have special knowledge, knowledge from God, insight into the spiritual realm that that you don't have. Be wary of those who have a word of the Lord for you. Unless the word comes from the pages of God's word, don't accept it as from the Lord. The ESV Bible, that's the one we are using here that we use, has 757,439 words, all inspired by God. If you can't find a word from the Lord there, then you have a problem. But these visionaries see themselves as above others and equal with or above God's Word. They often call their followers to unquestioned obedience, while they themselves often fall from their lofty perch to these sensual sins. But even so, people are attracted to those who claim special knowledge, visions from God. The hope is they too will get some of that, uh, some of that for themselves. Some of what these visionaries have, they too will be admitted into the inner circle. The thing is, for those who are in Christ, we're already in the only inner circle that matters we're children of God, we're joint heirs with Jesus, we're united in Christ. That needs to be enough, because that's the best. And yet people are still attracted to mystical experiences that are not of God. And in verse 19, Paul tells us what the root of the problem is. And these guys, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. These false teachers, the ones with the visions, the ones who supposedly had the inside track, Paul says they have no part in the true body of Christ. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they lead a church. But they were not part of the church because they were not holding fast, not submitting to the head of the church who is Jesus Christ. And when you don't hold on to Christ you've got a problem. You're you're not nourished. Remember, if you abide in Him and He in you, that's when you receive what you need. You're not rooted in Christ Jesus. And therefore, you stop growing. You starve to death spiritually. Which leads to seeking spiritual or mystical experience in other things, other philosophies that don't include Christ. Christ. The thing is, when, when we let go of Christ, you starve. And you then begin to seek nourishment in other places. We see this on a grand scale in our culture. As the society has rejected God, rejected Christ, people seek meaning and purpose in all kinds of places. All kinds of isms, if you will. Activism, altruism, rationalism naturalism materialism socialism liberalism conservatism legalism mysticism etc the problem is no matter where you go if it's not to christ there's no true food no real meaning no real purpose you'll never be satisfied with any christless philosophy Therefore, you will keep seeking for deeper knowledge through visions and and other things. But unless you hold fast to Christ, anything you find will be false, empty calories. Never satisfy. Never fill you up. So the application is clear, right? We have to hold on to Christ, the head. We must seek our knowledge and experience of God through Christ. Christ. Not through some Christless, mystical, ultimately demonic experience or ism. We must get our nourishment from Christ, from the word of Christ, where God reveals himself. You want to you see God? You want to know more about God? Look to Christ, look to his word. Not to a, uh, the word is given not to a select few, but to all who are willing to seek diligently after him. It's for you, it's for me. So don't allow legalism or mysticism to divert you from Christ. And finally, one more ism. Let no one deceive you with dogmatism. Now, as we'll see, the word dogmatism actually does appear in our text, sort of. But let's uh, begin with a definition. According to dictionary.com, dogmatism is the tendency to lay down principles as inconvertibly true... Incontrovertibly. I should really practice reading these big words if I'm going to use them, don't you guys think? Without consideration of evidence or the opinions of others. I mean, we know, dogmatic, right? They're dogmatic. Doesn't matter what you say. This is similar to legalism in some ways, but whereas legalism is based on the law, dogmatism, as we'll see, can be based on many things, including Dogmatism can be uh, based on the Word of God, which would be a good dogma, a good dogmatism, right? It's important to be dogmatic about what the the clear teachings of Scripture. But that's not what Paul is talking about in this passage. Beginning in verse 20, we read, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, those demonic forces, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. So here Paul is clearly referring back to verse 8. Let's read that again. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In verse 8, we saw that there there are empty, deceptive philosophies according to human tradition, but ultimately based in these elemental demonic spirits. And, And they're seeking to captivate believers, take them away. And in verse 20, Paul is saying that in Christ, you died to these elemental spirits of the world. Remember last week, we're triumphant over all rules and authorities in Christ. So why do you act like you're still alive in this world? Why are you living like that? Why do you respond like the world? Why are you being diverted from Christ? Why do you submit to regulations? That phrase, submit to regulations, is one word in the Greek. Not surprisingly, it's the word dogmatizo, which means to lay down an ordinance or dogma. And it's where we get our word dogmatism. So what's happening is these false teachers are teaching these ordinances, this dogma, these rules, which involve several do-nots. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And my guess is, this is that's just a sample of the dogma of do-nots. This is oh so very human in nature, Right? According to human precepts or, or commandments and teachings and, and whatever these false teachers were forbidding to handle and to taste and to touch was referring to, Paul says, things that all perish as they're used. These rules concern the things of the world that are destined to pass away. So clearly this dogma of do nots is not from God, but it can be deceptive. In verse 23, Paul says these, these, these regulations, this dogma of do-nots, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is where the deception comes. When one creates or one insists on people following a certain set of rules, these are the rules You must follow them, telling telling them not to do this, not to do that if you are to be accepted to God. Just here's the list, do that and you're good. Don't do that and God will accept you. This has an appearance of wisdom. Doesn't your sacrifice to God, not doing these things, these things you really want to do deep down inside, doesn't it show him how much you really love him? And therefore, increase his love for you. But Paul says this is false, deceptive wisdom for several reasons. First, it promotes self-made religion. That phrase in the Greek is very specific. It means worship which one prescribes and devises for himself. Duh, self-made religion. Worship that is contrary to the contents and nature of faith which ought to be directed to Christ. So it's self-made. It's not of God. The self-made religion, this dogmatism of do-nots, it comes from human tradition and ultimately elemental spirits. Like all man-made religion, it's the opposite of the gospel. Man says, if I do these things, or if I don't do these things, if I stick to the dogma, if I check off the rules I'm supposed to follow and not, if I give up these things that I really want to do, God must accept me. That's the root of paganism, by the way. If I do this specific dance, if I stop doing this thing, if I sacrifice this thing, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to manipulate God to accept me. And that's the same. That's, let, me, let me just say that's every single religion in the world except one, biblical Christianity. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says, you and I are unacceptable, full stop, period. No matter what we do or don't do, we are unacceptable to God. And it's only by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, that we become acceptable to God. Our acceptance before God is a work of God, Through Christ alone, we have no part in our own justification. We have no part in making ourselves acceptable to God. So first, the appearance of wisdom in this dogma of do-nots is merely a promotion of self-made religion. Second, this false wisdom promotes asceticism, which, if you remember, means false humility or self-abasement, sticking to a self-made dogmatic religion of do-nots can give us a sense of achievement. I, I did it, you know? So, uh, I'm, I'm uh, we talked about Lent, right? And so, we in the past have even promoted, you know, this is a time to maybe sacrifice some things for the Lord, always reminding us that that's not how you get your acceptance before God, but you can uh, use it as a means of entering into God's presence on more occasions. So, I decided during this Lent I'd give up uh, sweets. Yesterday, I had three cookies, so you see how I'm doing. But anyway, but when we do that, when we say, I'm going to give this up, and then we accomplish it, which I never had that experience, but uh, it it gives us the sense of achievement, right? It kind of makes us proud. Look what I did. But in... uh, In religious, Christian circles especially, overt pride is seen as wrong, right? So it turns into false humility. Oh, look at me, how lowly I am. Look at what I'm doing or not doing for the sake of God. Oh, but it's not about me, it's about God, but look at me. This, Jesus said, was the Pharisees' problem. When they fasted, they made sure everyone saw just how lowly they were. So second, this appearance of wisdom in the dogma of do-nots promotes asceticism, false humility. And third, this false wisdom promotes severity to the body. Apparently, it involved giving up things that were necessary for the proper care of the body. It may have involved unhealthy fasting. Fasting not for the sake of spending time with God, growing deeper in your relationship with God, but fasting that would go so far as to harm your body. Showing God just how much you would sacrifice for Him thus gaining his acceptance. It may have gone as far as uh, beyond fasting to include some forms of self-mutilization, similar to what was practiced in some of the uh, pagan mystery religions of the time. So the problem with the dogma of do-nots is that to some it appears wise, but in reality it promotes self-made religion asceticism, false humility, and severity to the body. And sadly, church history is filled with stories of those who were deceived by dogmatism, by some unbiblical proclamation or set of rules to help you pursue God. For example, no meat, no meat on Fridays, no card playing, no dancing, no wine, no marriage, no sex, no parenthood, in that order, marriage, sex, parenthood, etc., And I'm not saying that all of these rules are bad. I'm saying that if you think keeping these rules, adhering to this dogma, is what makes you acceptable to God, then you're deceived. Paul makes that very clear. But but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's what they were saying. I mean, it's it's, uh, ironic, isn't it? They're saying, here's the things you don't do to keep your flesh from from sinning, to keep you from sin. And Paul says, "Uh, nope, it doesn't stop that. The false teaching, the dogma of do nots, poses as wisdom because of its religious humility and extreme self-denial. But it has no value to what's important. It's focused on what we do and don't do with our bodies, But ultimately, and ironically, it has no power to stop the indulgence of the flesh. It offers no cure for sin because it doesn't get to the core of the problem. The sin nature cannot be eradicated by any human practice or lack of practice. Oh, you may be able to uh, uh, do not a specific thing, a specific thing, sin. You may be able to muster the self Uh, discipline, to not do that thing, but even that will result in another sin, usually pride. The only way to truly truly deal with the sin nature is not through the dogma of do-nots, but by the transforming work of Jesus Christ. By coming to Christ, who will, as we saw last week, not only cancel the record of your debt for your sins, but will remove... Cut off, put to death your old self, and give you new life in Him. It's a whole new concept, it's a different thing. It's a transformation. Our death in Christ frees us from the elemental spirits of this world. The demonic powers of this world which promote and thrive on legalism and mysticism and dogmatism and other isms of human making. So when you face those who would judge you with legalism, hey, you're condemned unless you obey these laws. This is the standard. Obedience to the law is how you gain acceptance to God. Don't you know that? Or if you encounter those who would disqualify you with mysticism, hey, you're not in the inner circle. You'll not receive any deeper knowledge and Experience of God unless you take part in these spiritual exercises, this is what you must do to be accepted by God or when you encounter those who would deceive you with dogmatism here's the list of dos and do nots just stick to that and you're good to go. God will accept you if you can manage to not do these things or any other Christless philosophy, any other isms that tells you how to gain acceptance from from God, apart from faith in Christ alone, know this, believe this, trust this, as we saw last week, you died with Christ. Therefore, these false teachers and the elemental spirits behind them have no actual power over you. You need to believe this. That's our problem. We need to believe it. We need to trust it. We need to live in the reality of who we are in Christ. Dead to our old self. Alive to Christ. Free to experience the full satisfaction of the new life He provides. We're free in Christ. Hallelujah. The reality is, for in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Cling to that, and let no one divert you from Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, we thank You so much that we're free in Christ, that Christ removes all these isms and all we must do is trust in Him, cling to Him, hold on to Him, live for Him, walk in Him. Lord, I pray that we would be that kind of people. I pray You would give us that that power through Your Spirit to not be deceived, to not be judged, to not be disqualified by these isms in our world, promoted often by by religion, Father, I pray that you would help us just cling to Christ and live for Christ, for it's in his name we pray.